Okay, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to read with you from verse 15 down through verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, as we continue in our series, a discussion on the marriage relationship, family life, but with a broader application to relationships in general in the Christian life. Uh, There is an inescapable connection between them, so the principles that apply typically in the context of marriage have a varied application in the context of our other relationships. So let's pick up reading in verse 15. And the one thing I want to say to you, just as you, as you listen to what we're going to read in 15 through 21, realize that that text then moves into the passage that Doug spoke from two weeks ago. Okay, and that is directives about family life that moves into, into discussion about parenting, that moves into discussion about work relationships, and then broader relationships within the body of Christ. So there is a, a connection between 15 through 21 and what follows. Okay, so we're going to be looking at 15 to 21 today in relationship to how it affects the understanding of our marriage relationships and then our relationships at a broader level. Verse 15 says this, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make melody or music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence. For Christ. I was at a wedding yesterday, and I have another wedding coming up in two weeks for uh, Rocco and Rachel. Observations from weddings. For those who are getting married, weddings are, I think I can say this, pretty much exclusively joyous, positive, and hopeful occasions once you can get past the stress of the preparation, okay? It's kind of, I, I don't love weddings, okay, being at them, but I'm, I'm starting to enjoy them more. I don't know if it's part of the aging process or what it is, but I'm, I'm starting to, probably in my old age, being a little more reflective and melancholic, uh, starting to take it in a little bit more. And, and it, the observation would be this, that from people getting married, it seems to be an overwhelmingly positive and joyful thing. From the perspective of attenders, which is what I have always been since June 21st of, uh, of 1986, five. <laughs> I knew I was going to get that wrong. Sorry. Uh, you tend to sit at weddings and reflect on how it really is compared to what you thought it would be like, Right? And sometimes we ponder our part in that conclusion, in what it's like. What's my role? Where, where have I failed? Where have I been weak? Where have I done okay? Right? It's, it's a time for us to reflect on this incredible gift that God has given to us, the gift of marriage. In the context of marriage ceremonies, make this observation that large provinces are made and none are kept perfectly. 
But it's fascinating to me that as I sit through weddings and listen to the vows, I, there, there's only one, at one point in, which, in most vows in which I catch a hint of, I might not be able to do everything I'm promising. Now we talk about for rich or for poor or for sick and in health, right? And then what do we say? For better or for worse, right? And I said, okay, maybe that's the indication or, if you will, an admission that there are going to be times that we go through seasons of struggle. And in those seasons of struggle, I am committed. I am devoted. I am not going anywhere. This relationship will be permanent. But the truth is that promises are made that we struggle with attaining and achieving in our flesh, in our own personal capacities. We tend to struggle, wrestle, and often we fail. We tend to make little allowance in our commitments for our large tendency towards self-centeredness. Little said about that in wedding vows. What maybe we should say is something like, I promise to crucify my desires every day so that I can love you and serve you and make you everything that God wants you to be. When we sit at weddings, we want the love that we long for in those relationships to be true. We want the innocence, the exhilaration, the joy, the sheer pleasure to be sustainable and the real experience of our lives. The truth is that marriage is the most joyous and demanding of human relationships. It provokes, it provokes wonderful and happy thoughts. But it is also perhaps the most demanding relationship that you will ever experience. Is there hope for our marriages? And here's what I want to I share with you this morning. From the positive perspective, there is hope that our homes can be what God intends for them to be. Is there hope that any of them will be perfect? How many of you have hoped that your marriage from this day forward will be perfect? I'd, would you like it to be perfect? I, yes. Do I have hope that it will be perfect? No, I don't. I don't. The problem is not the woman sitting over here to my left. It's not the problem. Okay? I know that it won't be perfect because I'm part of that relationship. And I have to wrestle with a basic tendency towards self-centeredness. That's the essence of our sinfulness. We move into relationships not because of what we bring. I didn't commit myself to my wife thinking, I am going to help her. I was attracted to my wife because I saw a lot of positive qualities that were very compelling to me. And it's in that sense that our marriages are unlike the gospel, aren't they? We tend not to look at what I'm going to be able to do for this person, but we tend to shop for a, a suitable completer who will meet our needs. It's just our natural bent. We wrestle with that. And it affects our marriage relationship. And it affects our other relationships in serious ways. God in his mercy, however, anticipates our weaknesses, doesn't he? And as Christians, what does he do? He gives to us the blessing of this indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that transforms and remakes us. It makes the kind of life that we should live possible, even though in human terms it is impossible. He makes extraordinary things happen in our hearts and in our lives as we yield ourselves to him. So what I want to say to you this morning is that, yes, I believe there is hope for sustainable love in Christian marriage and in our relationships at large when and under what circumstances 
is the question that I want to address. And I want to do it by acknowledging something that occurs in this text in, in Ephesians. The word that's used in verse 15 is, be very careful then how you live. If you're using the King James Version this morning, it says, be very careful how you walk. Okay? And the word that's used literally talks about a, a, a journey from one place to a destination. And we as Christians are on a journey. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The journey is sanctification, where God by the Spirit is seeking to take us from where we are to where He wants us to be. Marriage is part of that sanctification process. And the Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives and comes and fills us so that we can become something that we could never be on our own in the broader context of our relationships. And so over and over again in the book of Ephesians, from chapter 4 forward, you find this idea of walk or live. In chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, live worthy of the gospel. Okay, because chapters 1 to 3 have done what? They've unpacked the glories of the gospel. And chapters 4 through 6 are a practical application of the gospel to very specific areas of our lives. And so, on a number of occasions, I think it counted four or five where it says, live or walk according to the gospel. That is, our Christian life is a movement from where we are to where God wants us to be. It's a journey. And a lot of times, we don't know what's over the next mountain. We don't know what's around the next corner. So we need to be resting so strongly in God so that we're able to deal with those circumstances as they come into our lives. And I think this text encourages three basic practices that will help us in moving in a proper direction in our marital relationships and in our relationships at large. And the first one comes out of verses 15 through 17. And here's what the text says. Be very careful then how you live or walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So the first admonition that precedes moving into this deeper truth about marriage is what? Live a thoughtful life. Be a thinking Christian. Okay, Christians aren't people who just simply rest in the power of God, give their lives over to Him, and stop thinking about their life. No, this text calls us to be thoughtful, to engage our minds in the process of Christian living, and to do it very carefully. I think in the King James, this verse says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Okay, and that is to to walk and live in a way that takes into account the truth, the wisdom of God's Word, and then to put it into action. What is a fool? All right, a fool is someone who knows the truth but ignores it. So when we hear of an accident caused by speeding or by drunk driving, what do we think? That person that violated the law and cost that other person their life, that person is a fool. Why? They didn't. Heed what they knew to be true. They knew it intellectually, but they didn't apply it in their life. And here's what God is encouraging us to do. Live according to the truth that you know about Christ and about Christian living. Take that truth. Put it into practice. Make it part of your daily walk and experience. This word, walk circumspectly. I heard this illustrated when I was in college by a visiting preacher. He said that the word had to do in the ancient world with a picture. Okay, and the picture was this. If you wanted to protect your courtyard from invaders, on top of the wall, in the cement, you would embed pieces of broken glass. 
All right, the purpose of them was deter, to deter people from climbing over the wall. All right, now here's what would happen. Dogs and cats and other varmints and animals would do what? They'd walk around on those walls. But how did they walk? Circumspectly. Okay, and if you watch cats walk in wet grass, they walk circumspectly, right? There's a picking up of the foot and a careful placing. So as to what? So as to avoid damage and injury. That's the picture of this verse. Live knowing that there are landmines spiritually and morally all around you. Satan is the master of IEDs, isn't he? He sets things around your life that will destroy your life. If you don't live and walk wisely and carefully. Simply putting the truth of God's word into practice. So that's, that's kind of how this paragraph begins. And it moves towards this idea of making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Don't ignore what God says but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think that the, the, the obvious ramification here is once you know it, put it into practice. Okay, so we, we, we make the most of our opportunities in life. By what? By living a thoughtful Christian life. Be thoughtful before God. Find out what He wants. Verse 17 says, know what the will of the Lord is. What is his desire and plan for your life today? And what do we often tend to think? We often tend to think about individualistic, large pictures and plans. What is God talking about here? He's talking about the daily walk, the daily execution of our Christian experience. That we should do that carefully so as to make the most of the time that we have in this life for the glory of God. Okay, so that's the first thrust. Live a thoughtful Christian life. Secondly, verse 18. And I think this gets to the heart of this paragraph. Because I can't do the first three verses in my own strength. So Paul admonishes us with this. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let's unpack this second thought. Live thoughtfully. Secondly, pursue a life that is spirit-driven. Okay, pursue a life that is spirit-driven. The word that's used here in chapter 5 is be filled with the Spirit. It's set in contrast to another problem, right? Beginning of verse 18 says, don't be drunk with wine. Here's, here's the picture. It's not a forbidding of the use of wine, but it is a clear prohibition Concerning the abuse of wine. Why? Because in this text, it leads to a word, even in the New International Version, that's kind of like debauchery. That's the word. Now, here's what you know. That's not a good thing. How do you know it's not a good thing? Because of how it sounds. Right? It's one of those words they call them, I think I get this right, onomatopoetic. Am I, am I saying it's, it, it is what it sounds like. All right? So if I abuse alcohol, it will lead to debauchery, here's what's fascinating. The other place that that word is used in the New Testament is Luke chapter 15. Story of the prodigal son. What did he do? He got his inheritance and he went out and what? Invested it on Wall Street and made great amounts of money and lived happily ever after. No, what did he do? He squandered it. He wasted it. Okay? And that's the idea of the word here. Okay? The call from God is 
to us is don't surrender the control of your life to anything other than the Spirit. And alcohol is just used simply as an illustration. Why? Because alcohol is in some ways comparable to the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. All right, if you fill yourself with alcohol, what happens? It takes over and controls, but it controls in a reverse sort of way, right? It, it takes the seatbelts off of your life. Whereas the Spirit of God brings what? Self-control, okay? If you abuse alcohol, it will strip your life of control. And in that sense, you're under the what? Influence. Okay, to be under the influence of alcohol is not to be restrained and controlled and thoughtful and wise. No, it's to be reckless and destructive and wasteful of what? Well, I think it ties back to verse 17. To become wasteful of the God-given opportunities that are present in my life and present in the context of my marriage and my home. So, don't be taken away with something that can dehumanize, that can blunt judgment and effectiveness. Proverbs says it makes you a fool. Wine is a mocker. If you consume it, it will turn around and laugh at you. That's the idea. The Spirit of God, on the other hand, does what? He comes into your life and transforms you. He takes your negative qualities and transforms them into good things. He washes you of sinful habits and fills your life with things that are good and lovely and productive in the context of your relationships. So the, the command is set up in a negative and a positive. Don't be filled with this. It leads to a lack of control. Be filled with this. It will maximize your life and the opportunities that God has given to you. So the command is stated very simply this. Be filled with the Spirit. Most translations, you're going to find that the word spirit here is capitalized because it is speaking in reference to the work of the Holy Spirit that God sends into the heart of every believer to change us and to transform us. Now, let me make these observations about this command and then we'll move forward. Observations. Number one is that it is, in fact, a command. We are to be actively seeking to be influenced by the work of the Spirit. Secondly, it is to be the experience of every believer. Every believer is to be seeking a greater fullness and presence and influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And third, it is continual and repeated. Okay, it is continual and repeated. I am in need of this filling of the Spirit on a daily basis. Now, do we live in that consciousness? Often we don't. Okay, often we don't. We tend to get off in ourselves and self-centeredness begins to take over because the Spirit of God comes to do what? To restrain our self-centeredness and to free us to serve others. He always comes with an effect and with an influence. Now, as you read through the book of Acts, here's what you'll notice about this idea of being habitually filled with the Spirit. Okay, in Acts chapter 4, Peter stands up to preach. And here's what the Bible says. It says, and Peter, being filled with the Spirit, got up and proclaimed the gospel. Acts chapter 7 and 8, it's the story of Stephen, the first recorded martyr in the book of Acts. Okay, how's the story go? It says that Stephen is there preaching the word of God, having been what? Filled 
with the Spirit. All right, and the evidence of the Spirit's presence is what? There is flowing out of Peter, there is flowing out of Stephen, and numerous others throughout the book of Acts on a repeated basis, and in filling that is transforming their speech and how they live. All right, why? That's why the Spirit of God comes. And so we're called to be filled with the Spirit of God in such a way that our life is transformed. Now, if you were to say to me, Tim, what do you think is the major key in our personal experience to being filled with the Spirit? Here's what I believe it is. I believe it is a life of surrender. Where we are giving up the control of our lives. Where we are in prayer confessing and surrendering our lives, our resources, our capacities, our hearts to God on a regular basis. And as we do that, what does God do? God begins to transform you into something that you can't take credit for. It is the work of God that begins to be unleashed in our hearts by the power of the Spirit. Now, what this text does then is, it, it then moves in verses 19 to 20 to show us what happens when we are filled with the Spirit. Now listen to what it says. It says, and, and let me just give you this kind of a note grammatically here. Verses 18 through 21, okay, are one sentence in the original language. Okay, 18 through 21, one sentence in the original language. Okay? So what's it say? What's the, what's the command that governs the whole thing and what are the clauses that are attached? The command that governs it all is be filled with the Spirit. All right, what are the evidences or marks of being spirit-filled? And notice what it says. All right, it says that you will then speak to one another. You will sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You will give thanks to God. And you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so what do you find? You find five verbs or, or, if you will, participles that modify the main verb of this sentence. Be filled. And when you're filled, what's going to happen? All right, and these are the evidences of fullness. Four are spoken. Verbal, audible, you can hear them. And then one is an attitude that we will begin to experience towards one another. And that attitude has a direct impact upon our Personal and marital relationships. Now, this thought about speaking to another, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody and music in our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in Jesus' name. What's going on with that? When we come together to sing songs of praise to God, what's going on with that? And here's what it is. Okay, it is, it is the time when we are expressing praise, love, gratitude, and appreciation to God for what? For all that He's done in our lives. Now, when you are filled with the Spirit of God to the point that there is joy in your life, that there is appreciation and gratitude, that there is a song on your heart, what happens? You are a much easier person to live with, right? And what do we tend to think? We tend to think, well, if I have this individual in my life, I will be happier. Right? This person will complete me and bring joy to me. If you do that with an individual in your life, particularly in the context of marriage, you set that person up for certain failure. They can't be for you what God can be for you. 
They can't be for, who, for you who Jesus Christ is to you in the gospel. Nobody is that good. So when we surrender ourselves to the fullness of the Spirit, to the degree that our lives are being transformed, what happens? Our relationships begin to improve. Right? Our marriage relationships begin to experience progress. Why? I'm not so incredibly needy and demanding of the people around me. Does that make sense? If I'm full of joy in Christ, I, you know, I love being hugged by Victor Kelly and having him welcome me in his joyful and full way. But if he doesn't hug me on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to be ticked off at him. Why? Because my joy isn't tied to that particular relationship. Okay, can you see how this sets us up for failure and for dis disappointment in our marriage and in other relationships? We want things out of people, and we don't get the things out of people that we want. We're, uh, we're upset. What does God say? God says, let me fill you. And when I fill you, you come to the place that the psalmist comes to in Psalm 1611. Here's what the psalmist said. He says, you have made me to know the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. So what's the psalmist saying? With God, I'm complete. I'm happy. I'm, I have a full life. And other people that come into the context of my relationships are what? They're blessed by that fullness that God is bringing into my life. So as we yield to the fullness of the Spirit, He makes music in our hearts that brings joy to our lives and makes us a blessing to the people around us. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, marriage does not fill you. Jesus does. Marriage does not fill you. Jesus does. And if we come into our relationships with this type of a, an attitude, it will bring relief to those around us. Last thing I'd like us to look at is verse 21. The outflow of this spirit-filled life that is full is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, realize, be filled, sing, make music, give gratitude, and submit to one another are all clauses. All right? In, in the New International Version, verse 21 is given as a separate sentence. In the original language, in the original writing, it's not a separate sentence. It's dependent upon being filled with the Spirit. Okay, you say to me, now, why is that important? Well, because this idea of submitting to one another is not something that is attractive and appealing in the world that I live in. In fact, we live in a world that when you start using the word submit, people react to that word very strongly. They see hierarchy and structure and, and the demeaning abuse of others and, and, and abusive relationships with people seeing here. It's why in most marriage ceremonies today, you don't hear very often, I will submit myself to you. Why? Because there's something about that that we don't like. It's true for all of us. Okay? It's only when the Spirit of God has so satisfied us that we can be broken free from our natural self-centeredness and then free to align ourselves rightly with others to serve them. Do you see the difference? And when that attitude is present, what happens? It transforms our marriage relationships. It transforms all of our relationships. Because we are so content with and happy in Christ that we can freely release ourselves. So, verse 21 then says that this affect of the fullness of the Spirit is that it confronts our natural selfish tendencies with the power of the Spirit of God. 
Okay? The fullness of the Spirit of God does what? He comes to shape Christ in us. He comes to transform us. John 14 and John 16. Jesus said when He comes, He's going to reveal me to you. You will gain a clearer picture of who Jesus is when the Spirit of God comes and fills you and begins to transform your life. Be filled with the Spirit is a hinge that then ties the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to success in the broader context of relationships, first marriage, then parenting, then work relationships, and then the broader context of the church. Okay, and apart from that filling of the Spirit, what happens? We struggle, we wrestle, we're weak. Why? Because we're self-centered. And so the Spirit of God comes to defeat those sinful, selfish tendencies that all of us wrestle with. I want to give a nod back to the book of Galatians chapter 5. And verse 16, another text that talks about this, I believe, filling with the Spirit of God. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Do you see the connection? Live by the Spirit. Walk in conformity with, let Him direct your steps. And when you do that, sinful, self-centered desires will begin to fall aside. He puts those things to death and brings out in us Things that are glorious and wonderful and beautiful. Verse 17, he says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each, with each other so that you cannot do what you want. But this battle within between my flesh and the voice of the Spirit of God is so strong that in the end, Tim Hoff can't will to do the Christian life. Paul then says this, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, all right, which I think is a parallel to Ephesians 5, filled with, controlled by, under the influence of the Spirit, what happens? Your life will be changed. And here's the question I want to ask you. How dramatically will the life of a Spirit-filled believer be in terms of this transformation? Well, verse 22 of chapter 5 gives us a picture of an individual that all of us would love to be married to, would love to live next door to, would love to have as our boss at work, love to have as our pastor, okay? Galatians 5.22 says this, the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence that He is there at work is what? Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There is no guilt that goes with that package. And when somebody is so filled with the Spirit of God that their life is transformed, what happens? These beautiful fruits begin to hang on the tree of their life. And their life becomes what? It becomes a blessing to everyone around them. You see, here's the connection, I believe. The, the picture of fruit in our lives is the picture of a tree. It is a tree that gives life. Guess what happens when you get into the kingdom one day? You know what God's going to do? God's going to raise up a tree of life. And you know when it bears fruit? It bears fruit in every month of the year. And it is a blessing to everyone who experiences it. What is God doing through the church? What does he want to do through our lives? You know what he wants to do? He wants to so change us. That the fruit of the Spirit is there for people to partake of and to enjoy the benefit of. As we yield to Him, what he, he keeps pumping out these blessings in this fruit that makes your life 
a tremendous benefit to everyone that comes into contact with you. What a great way to live in our marriage. That we, by the Spirit, become a tree that gives life, a life that bears fruit. That fruit is love, joy, gentleness, peace, patience, self-control. You know what all those things do? All those things defeat my natural tendency to say, I don't want to take my role. I don't want to love my wife like I should because the demands of that are so selfless when I compare them to Christ. He demands so much. My flesh doesn't say, you know what? God, I want to give myself completely for the benefit of this other person. But the Spirit of God inside does what? He says, yes, do that. And so throughout chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians, what's happening? You find this persistent recollection or looking back to Jesus as a model of this selflessness, right? Philippians chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. Here's what God says. He says, or Paul to the church is saying this, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then Paul concludes that by saying this, your attitude relationally towards each other should be the same as that of Christ. And what was the attitude of Christ? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He freely gave his entire self for the benefit of fallen and broken humanity. And folks, when the Spirit of God fills us, He frees us to experience a mutual love and submission and appropriate fulfilling of our God-given responsibilities and roles selflessly and sacrificially in a way that brings the blessing of God into every one of our lives. It starts with individuals, though, doesn't it? Let each of you be filled with the Spirit. Yield your life complete to Him and watch what God will do in the context of your Christian life. And I believe ultimately this clarification of the gospel that we will enjoy together at the Lord's table, that clarification of what Christ actually has accomplished for us after living the life that I couldn't live and dying the death that I should die, as we partake of that, what happens? We realize that if the Son of God in His utter perfection would give Himself in such a way, then isn't that for me an adequate, strong motivation to love my wife like I should? To love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ like I should. Okay? We have to get back to the cross. Because when we get back to the cross, we see something that we did not deserve, that we did not contribute to, freely given for us and changing us forever. That's what God aims to do in each of our lives. Now, the one question I ask at the beginning is this. Is there hope? Can my life change? Can my marriage of 28 years experience progress? Can yours? I think the answer to that question is found in Ephesians 1 where we find this definition of the work of the Spirit. It says, you also were included in Christ 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel that saves you. What is the gospel? The gospel is that Christ lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I should have died, and offers me the hope of eternal life as a free gift. That's the gospel. For every sinner who will trust him, he will change their life forever. But he does something more. He comes into your life by the presence of the Spirit. Every Christian has this experience. Listen to what it says. Having been, or having believed, I'm sorry, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now here's what a seal is. A seal is a piece of metal that has an insignia on it that is pressed into hot wax. And when it's pressed into hot wax, what does it do? It leaves behind the exact image. Okay? What did the Spirit of God do when He saved you? He impressed upon your life the person of Christ. And His aim for the rest of your life is to transform you into the exact likeness of Jesus. Is that possible? Is there hope that my life can make it to the end for the glory of God and for you as well? Here's what he says. You were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So when you believe, this verse says, you got the promise of the Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Now, do you see how hope rises here? Notice what it says. The Spirit is a deposit. He is the first installment of our full inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So when the Spirit of God came and transformed us, what was the, if you will, what is the full reach of that transformation? Well, the Bible says this, Ephesians 4.30, you were sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption, which says what? What God has started in your life, He aims to complete in your life and to finish in your life for the glory of God. So is there hope for your relationships? Is there hope for your marriage? Can you change? Well, if you have the Spirit of God in you, He is the promise that what God has begun in you through the gospel of Christ, He aims to complete. And He is devoted to do it until the day that Jesus Christ returns to take us home, to be with Him. That is why I believe every married person, every marriage-minded person, every single person who is seeking to know Christ and love Christ in their relationships can have hope. Why? It's not rooted in me. It's not tied to my willpower or my strength. It's tied to the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God as we yield to Him on a daily basis. Don't grieve Him. Don't quench Him. Be filled by Him as you surrender your life to Him on a daily basis. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning.